Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Nick Bunker, author and 2015 George Washington Prize winner, to discuss his new book, Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity. As a friendly reminder, there's still time to register for our next Michelle Smith lecture featuring 2016 George Washington Prize winner and Pulitzer Prize finalist Nathaniel Philbert, who will highlight his new book, In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown, on April 24th. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast. As always, please be sure to rate and subscribe to this series wherever you get podcasts so that you do not miss an episode. And now, we join Dr. Butterfield and Mr. Bunker in the studio. Then Franklin at some point says he was the youngest son of the youngest son for some number of generations back. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the Franklin family background. Well, the Franklin family background is something that I think is extraordinarily important uh, because there were all kinds of aspects of his his heritage, so to speak, which came to play an important or even a decisive uh, role in his future career. The Franklins came from Northamptonshire, uh, right in the heart of England, about 70 miles northwest of London. And they were not poor. Uh, they were village blacksmiths. But in, but in England at the time, the village blacksmith was a highly skilled craftsman, often one of the pillars of the local community. And that was certainly true of the Franklins, pillar of the local community and a pillar of the, of the local church as well. Uh, they were very great friends with the local Church of England minister, a man called John Palmer, Archdeacon Palmer, who also actually was a Presbyterian during the period of the English Civil War. The Franklins were very close to him. They were highly literate people, and they were actually pretty successful, uh, more, than, more than you might expect from reading the kind of brief summary in his autobiography, which implies that they were kind of rather poor and backward and downtrodden. Hmm. So why come to America if they're doing so well? What's the, what's the story that brings the Franklins to, to North America? It's all to do with religion and to do with politics. And this is an important point about the, uh, the early section of my book. There's been a tendency in the last 50 years or so for historians and biographers to uh, discount or reject Franklin's own account of his father's motivation for coming to America. What Franklin said was that his father Josiah had come in search of religious freedom. Now, historians have tended to kind of dismiss that idea and prefer to regard him as an economic migrant. But what I was able to show very conclusively uh, from the uh, from the work I did, the extra archival research I did in England, was to show that Franklin was right. Uh, he, there's no question that his father, Josiah, was a Whig, uh, a dissenting Protestant, who chose to leave England in 1683 because this was the period when King Charles II was in the midst of his great crackdown on his political opponents, uh, Whigs, Presbyterians, and dissenters and so on. So uh, tell me about Josiah. Uh, what, what, what kind of a man was he after he comes to North America? Uh, how does he make his living? What kind of a mark does he make in his society? Well, again, there's a very important issue here, which has to do with what Josiah had been in England. Now, again, what I was able to show was that Josiah had been a high school craftsman, dyer of silk uh, in London, and he had actually trained as an apprentice in London. It had always been thought hitherto that he had trained in the countryside, but I was able to show that he actually trained in London. Now, this meant that he was actually on the path, on quite a a good career path in England. So his decision to leave on religious and political grounds and to come to America meant that actually, when he arrived in Boston, Massachusetts in the fall of 1683, he had to kind of take a step downwards. Having been a craftsman in a highly skilled trade, which was quite highly paid, that of dyeing silk, instead he had to take a downward step to become a a tallow chandler, a maker of soap and candles, which Mm. was not really as prestigious. 
And uh, what kind of um, uh, family life is there before Ben Franklin comes along? What, what, how are there a number of children? Oh, great many! Uh, in fact, I've, Josiah actually had two broods of children. He mm-hmm. had uh, seven by his first wife Anne, who had come with him from England, and ten by his second, uh, Abia, uh, Benjamin Franklin's mother. So yeah, it was a very big family. Wow. Uh, four of the children died in infancy, but the rest survived. And actually, some of them did pretty well. They prospered. Um, the daughters of some of the married sea captains. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's elder brother, James, of course, was a printer too, although unfortunately he died young. And he had the other family members actually did some interesting things too. For example, two of them were seafarers. Hmm. So when Franklin comes along, uh, 1706, uh, it's a, uh, this is a, a liminal period in, 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 the, in the British Empire. Um, uh, this is always the point at which in a history class, you stop saying England and you start referring to something like Great Britain. Talk to me about this moment in time when Ben Franklin is born, the first decade of the 18th century. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, he was born in 1706, which is the year before the Act of Union between England and Scotland. And that's a very important uh, issue in itself. In fact, as it happens, uh, in Boston, the Franklin family actually lived at the intersection of two streets, Union Street and Hanover Street. Hanover being named after, of course, the, the Elector of Hanover, otherwise known as King George I. Mm. So you know, the Boston, the people of Boston were very, very well abreast of all the political developments going on in England. Now, there's another issue which I think is very significant for Franklin's early life, which was that actually he grew up in a period of peace. Now, people often think of the 18th century as being dominated, if you will, by a great kind of global rivalry between England and France. It's not really true at that point. Uh, Between 1713 and 1743, most of Franklin's youth and early life, uh, England and France were actually at peace. Uh, thanks to some quite wise statesmanship on both sides. And that was really important for Franklin because it meant that his formative years were years of peace and prosperity. When the North Atlantic was full of ships, trade was flourishing, population, of course, was growing in America. And that really was part of, of what made him what he was because this enabled Franklin to build his business. Later on, of course, England and France and Spain did go to war with each other, and that again became an important part in, in, of, of the kind of shaping of his career in politics and so on. But in that early period when he was concentrating on business, he had the good fortune to live in what I call an era of peace and equilibrium. What kind of education did he get? Well, not as much as he would have liked. Um, and it's really sad, I think, actually, that he never really had a mathematical education, because if Franklin had had a truly mathematical education, if he had been able, for example, to master the calculus, which, of course, was available by this stage because, of course, it had been invented by both Newton and Leibniz in the 17th century. If Franklin had been able to master the calculus, then, of course, he could have done all kinds of wonderful things with his, with his with the experiments in electricity. Mm. He did a great deal anyway, but that would have taken him far further. Uh, his education, well, he had essentially just one year of formal schooling at what became the Boston Latin School. I think then it was known as the South Grammar School. Um, then he had a little bit of training in a school, what was called a writing school, which was a school for learning handwriting and bookkeeping and so on. But then after that, he was he's basically uh, out on his own in terms of education. He had to teach himself from books while at the same time working as an apprentice printer to his brother James. When does he begin doing that? Uh, pretty early, at the age of about 12, wow. uh, which was kind of a normal age, a little bit young, actually, for an apprentice in those days. But, but really, they had little alternative because the family, <laughs> there were so many children, <laughs> they had to be provided for. Well, let's scale back a bit. What is Boston like in these early years for, for, for Benjamin Franklin? 
How would you describe it? Very, very much a maritime city. I think that's an absolutely crucial point. That, that of course, the Boston that we know today is still a, a seaport up to mm-hmm. a point. But in those days, of course, the, the great land drainage schemes that reshaped Boston in the last century or so had not occurred. So Boston was very much uh, a maritime city, almost surrounded entirely by water, just connected to the mainland by a kind of small isthmus. It was still the Shawmut Peninsula that had first been seen by the English uh, nearly 100 years before he was born. So very maritime, very much a seaport. Um, a pretty rough and ready kind of a place uh, as well in that respect, um, and very, very urban. Uh, Franklin was a very urban man. As I sometimes say, he was a man of the sidewalk rather than of the soil. Hmm. And Boston, therefore, was very different from Philadelphia, which is much more a country still integrated into its kind of rural hinterland. So if uh, you mentioned his apprenticeship with James Franklin, who was a printer, um, what's, uh, what, is that, what, is, what is that in the, in the early 18th century? What are printers doing? Where are they making their money? Uh, is there uh, a big book trade in Boston, uh, other kinds of prints? What, 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 what are they focusing on? Well, again, very highly skilled trade, uh, demanding skills with the hand and with the eye and with the brain. Uh, in terms of, of what the publishers do, well, the great centre of the empire for printing was obviously London, mm-hmm. which is where Franklin had to go, where there were approximately maybe 75 printers. In Boston, maybe four or five. They were doing a variety of things. I mean, there were newspapers in Boston by the 1720s. There were actually three newspapers, including the one that uh, James Franklin, Franklin's elder for brother. For a city of how many? Uh, for a city at that time of no more than about 15,000, 16,000. Wow. At a max. But that was, of course, always a very interesting aspect of, of Boston. The Boston was always a very literate place with lots of controversies going on. Uh, very high levels of literacy among the Puritans, obviously, who had first arrived in Boston, and that was still the case in the 1720s. So making a living as a printer, though, wasn't easy. Uh, it was a, a trade that actually required quite a lot of investment in terms of equipment and paper and type and ink and so on, and very competitive as well. Is James Franklin good at it? Oh, yes, he was very good. Uh, now, James Franklin had done something very interesting. He had been to London in about 1717, 1718, um, it's not entirely clear whether James Franklin actually trained as a printer in, in London or whether he had all his training in Boston. But what he saw in London was the latest by way of uh, British journalism. Uh, this was a, a kind of a golden age of British journalism, uh, almost entirely in London, of course. That was really the only publishing centre in the country. Uh, golden age of British journalism. And what F- James Franklin was able to do was to take the lessons that he'd learned from seeing English newspapers and magazines and, and try and reinvent them in Boston, which he did. It's hard to walk around Philadelphia today and not uh, see signs of Franklin all over it, institutions he founded, um, markers across the city that, that make Philadelphia his city. So clearly we know he winds up there. What, tell me about his uh, departure from Boston. When, when does that come about and why does it come about? Well, that came about 1723. He really had no option but to leave. Now, he'd been working for his brother on the uh, the New England Current, which is the newspaper that uh, James had founded in kind of imitation of English models. Uh, it was a pretty controversial uh, paper, controversial in terms of its attacks on politicians and also on the clergy. 
And James Franklin had kind of made his peace with his opponents, uh, but, but Benjamin really hadn't. Uh, Benjamin was regarded as kind of a little bit beyond the pale because of what were thought to be his heretical opinions. And he and his brother James had also fallen out. So Benjamin really had to leave. And first of all, he intended to go to New York. That was his first plan because he thought that was where he could find work. And when that didn't work out, he ended up traveling down to Philadelphia. And he's how old? I was 17. 17 years old. So he arrives in Philadelphia. Um, I, I think in the autobiography it describes arriving basically empty-handed, um, clothes under his, under his arm or some such thing. Uh, but uh, is, that, is that true? Did he arrive in Philadelphia without friends and connections and prospects and, and somehow made a go of it? Or how, how do you read his arrival in this new city? Well, he certainly had no friends when he arrived in Philadelphia, although he did have a kind of a promise of a job uh, with, with um, the Bradford family, who were leading printers in both New York and Philadelphia. He didn't actually work with them in the end. He worked for a different print. But he had kind of a promise of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is this, though, that, yes, he arrived without friends and family, but this was an extremely good moment to be shipping up in Philadelphia because Philadelphia had been in a, a kind of economic recession, And the economic recession was drawing to an end just about the moment when Franklin arrived. And Philadelphia was about to embark upon 20 years or so of almost uninterrupted and fairly rapid economic growth and growth in the population. This was true of the whole of of Pennsylvania. This was the period when Pennsylvania was really making enormous strides forward. And so Franklin arrived in a city where there was a need for talented young men such as him. Uh, He arrived there and then he kind of rode up on the kind of crest of this wave of prosperity in Philadelphia over the next two decades. Well, talk to me about those two decades. Uh, I know that, that by a certain point, uh, Franklin is, is a, 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 an amazingly successful and, and thriving uh, individual in so many different aspects of his life. But in the first moment, he's simply a man with some printing experience. How does he make that first step into to really um, making a, a go of it in Philadelphia? Well, first of all, he went to work for a chap called Samuel Kima who was a very entertaining, eccentric character in his own right. He was a a recent immigrant from England. Uh, He was uh, a religious enthusiast, uh, belonged to a fairly extreme English religious sect. Hmm. He'd come to Philadelphia. Uh, He was starting to make a go of it as a printer in competition with the Bradford family. Um, And he needed someone as skillful as Franklin to come and work for him. And so the two of them worked together for about a year or so. And Franklin fairly rapidly made friends. Uh, He had a superb commander member of the English language and that was something that speedily won him friends in a city that was almost as literate as Boston. He also had a great talent for attracting the attention of powerful men. Mm-hmm. Not least because remember Franklin was a big guy. I mean he was he was not six feet but he was maybe only an inch or two beneath six feet. He was physically impressive, highly articulate, worked very hard He was someone who could attract attention, and he attracted patrons. He was very good at attaching himself to people who could help him and be useful for his career. And and what do you ascribe this to? Is is it just he was particularly adept and and, and inexplicably congenial? Or uh, how do you explain the fact that, because I always have been struck by the fact that he, uh, he had people that rallied behind him, wanted him to, uh, wanted to see him do great things, uh, these patrons that you describe. Uh, and you see that a, a few other times. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they have their moments where so clearly influential people take them under their wing and help them to thrive. Uh, why? Why these people and not others? Do you have a sense of things? 
obviously the natural talents that, that I described, but, but there was also an issue, I think, about the Franklin family again. The Franklin family had always done this. Hmm. Uh, they had done it in England, where his, his uncles, for example, had found quite powerful patrons in local politics and so on. Josiah in Boston, Josiah Franklin, Franklin's father, had, not least through, his, through the church he belonged to, the Old South Meeting House, had again made some, some friends with quite powerful people. I think the Franklins had a reputation for being what you might call safe pairs of hands. I mean, they were reliable, they were sober, which was quite an achievement in Boston at the time. <laughs> um, and they were people that who you, whom you could look to for loyalty and for honesty and reliability. And I think that was true of Franklin too. Now, not always. I mean, the, he did have some, some lapses. Uh, but, uh, but by and large, Franklin was someone who, who could command the same kind of esteem that his father had. So I was uh, very much enjoyed reading in your book about uh, Franklin's first experiences of the great metropolis of the British Empire, London. He goes there uh, sometime uh, shortly after he arrives in Philadelphia. Uh, why does he go there? And tell me about his time in, in London in the 1720s. Well, he went there uh, on a kind of rather grown-up mission, actually. Um, the, the governor of Pennsylvania at the time was uh, a man called Sir William Keith, who was a Scotsman. He'd been hired by the Penn family, the owners of Pennsylvania, as the governor. But he was embroiled in various political conflicts within the colony, and he wanted someone to act for him as a printer. He needed a printer to produce particular pamphlets, posters, placards, documents, and so on. And he thought that Benjamin Franklin, young though he was, was, was the person he needed. And so the plan was for Franklin to go to London to buy the equipment he would need printing press, paper, ink, lead type, and so on, to set up his own business as a printer in Philadelphia. Now, it didn't work out like that because it turned out that Sir William Keith, although he had promised Franklin finance, couldn't actually deliver it. So that when Franklin got to London, he actually had to find a job, and he, and he couldn't set himself up in business as a printer back home. Um, but nevertheless, that got him to London, and it got him to London and enabled Franklin to get a, quite a highly paid job and to kind of plunge, if you like, into the life of the uh, metropolis. And, and, and so he did. Uh, it sounds as if he, he uh, wound up settling into a part of the city that was particularly um, interesting, uh, I, sh I, could, I could say. Uh, tell me about the kinds of people that he's interacting with in his time in London. Well, first of all, printers. Uh, as I was saying, there were 75 printers in London. The area that Franklin went to live in, uh, to the north of St. Paul's Cathedral, was the kind of printing and booksellers quarter. Uh, politically, uh, London was interesting because although the government were Whigs, the, the people of London were largely Tories, so there was a great deal of political controversy at this point, middle of the 1720s. Franklin was also able to sort of mingle in the coffee houses with, with writers and uh, men of science and philosophers, and he was able to go to the theatre, something he'd certainly not have done in Boston because the theatre was illegal. <laughs> uh, there wouldn't be a theatre in Boston until the 1790s, and I don't think there was a theatre in Philadelphia either. It wasn't illegal, I just don't think there was one. Mm -hmm. uh, that was something very important to Franklin because theatre was a tremendously important aspect of English culture and it was something you really needed to kind of immerse yourself in if you wanted to understand how the English worked in the 18th century and Franklin did so. How long does he spend there? Uh, only 18 months. And it, uh, I, I think we, we, we sort of missed an opportunity to describe um, how the, the journeys thus far from Boston to Philadelphia are opening his eyes to new worlds. Mm -hmm. Clearly, London does the same. Um, by the time he's finished with this London trip and he's headed back to Philadelphia, I don't know, give us a snapshot of the man at this point. Is he, is he something like the Ben Franklin we think we know? Is he, is he still light years away from that? Oh, no, he's, he's on the way. He's on the way. First of all, what he's done in London is he's acquired a kind of graduate school training in the art of printing. 
Hmm. Uh, There are things that were being done in London in terms of book production, the layout of books, the format, the sizes of books, the typefaces, all these kinds of things that, that Franklin... Was, was was exposed to and that he could master. He couldn't necessarily replicate that immediately in the colonies because there just wasn't enough of a reading public, but nevertheless it was something that he saw. He also met experimental scientists, I mean physicists. So again, that was something that, that, that kind of laid the seeds, sowed the seeds for future greatness, if you like. Well, let's, let's, let's hone in on that then. Uh, ben Franklin is a man of science. Uh, what... what why would a, a someone someone who's trained as a printer, who's clearly got a great uh, a aptitude for the English language, why would someone in the 18th century feel that they're also capable of endeavoring in great scientific research? It, it strikes us in the modern era as as something that seems so remarkably um, um, ambitious for people to, be, to to attempt to do so many different things in so many different ways and to, to, to try to excel at them. Why did, why, what leads Bryn Franklin into thinking about himself as a man of science? Well, ambition is, is, is a very important word there, okay. I mean, because Franklin really was a very, very ambitious young man, no question about that. Well, it, it was easier in the 18th century, in a sense, because people didn't, didn't have, feel obliged to, to, uh, to thrust themselves into kind of narrow specializations and, and, and niches in the way that we do today. Uh, I, Franklin had probably been reading about scientific ideas, in fact, almost certainly since he was in his teens, because we know that he'd read religious and philosophical books that also contained references to Newtonian physics. Hmm. Uh, Later on, uh, in the early 1730s, when Franklin was only 25 or so, and he was founding the, the Library Company of Philadelphia, the lending library to which he belonged, some of the earliest books that they asked for from London were indeed scientific textbooks, the most advanced scientific textbooks about Newton's ideas. So a lot of it began with his reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think then the other issue was that, of course, Franklin was also, as I say, a craftsman. And being a scientist in the 18th century involved not simply theoretical work and mathematical work, but it also involved the design of apparatus. Mm. Uh, and this is something that Franklin made his forte. Uh, he, he and his colleagues in Philadelphia, when he turned to his electrical experiments in the 1740s, were not only uh, theoreticians, they were, they were craftsmen. And they enjoyed making the equipment, making the apparatus, and then seeing what they could do with it. Hmm. So um, we, ultimately we know electricity is, is something that, that Ben Franklin has spoken. Is that the only thing he was ever interested in as a scientist? What else did he, did he think about and, and want to learn about? Well, there are a great variety of things he was interested in. He was very interested in, in for example, in, in meteorology, very interested in that. Uh, he was very interested, of course, in, he was interested in medicine. He wasn't actually a doctor, of course, but he was interested in medical, medical applications. I mean, he did devise a kind of catheter, for example. Uh, of course, famously invented bifocals. There are a whole range of things he was interested in, you know, climate science, as I was saying, uh, issues to do with geography, um, a whole variety. The reason electricity is so important because that was the area where he made his great breakthrough hmm. and where he took the ideas of Newton. Newton, Sir Isaac Newton had begun to think and speculate about electricity back in about 1710-1720 but by then Newton was an old man um, he did not carry his work forward and it was really left to, to, to Franklin to, to carry forward the legacy of Newton and to put electrical science on kind of a new footing now Obviously, it took another 100 years after that before electricity became a kind of fully mathematical science and you know, paved the way for the physics of the, of the 20th century. But nevertheless, Franklin had been really something of a scientific revolutionary in terms of his work with uh, electrical phenomena. 
And yet, he's also a printer uh, and never, uh, well, not never, but uh, for the, for, throughout the, the course of the book that you're uh, a part of his life that you cover in your book, he doesn't lose sight of this. Um, I, at some point, uh, Poor Richard becomes a part of the story, uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. Tell us a little bit about how this comes to be and, and what exactly uh, this, this tells us about Ben Franklin and, and his, his sense of, of uh, what he wanted to do with his life. Tell us about Poor Richard. Well, almanacs had been something very popular in England from the uh, late 16th century onwards. I mean, these were, you know, calendars, if you like, annotated calendars, largely for the use of farmers and tradesmen, but farmers in particular, because people needed something to tell them about. They needed kind of a diary of the farming year. Um, And what they also liked to have was annotated calendars that also had in them kind of a bit of entertainment, you know, poems, Mm. jokes, little drawings and figures sometimes, you know, woodcut illustrations. This was already, and also astrological predictions, that was also kind of a fun thing to do in the 17th century. Mm. And so there are a lot of these around. Um, And when Franklin came on the scene in Philadelphia, there were some well-established almanac sellers, almanac printers and writers uh, in in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. What Franklin did was to to take those kinds of models and to make them considerably more sophisticated. And also, Franklin was very good at distribution. Franklin built kind of networks of agents up and down the coast, country stores and and people in seaports, who would distribute his product. And that was something that Franklin did extremely well. One of the things that I I learned in your book that really struck me was uh, that Franklin was, as you just suggested, a a remarkably successful uh, marketer and and someone who who, who really made something happen with his printed materials uh, beyond simply selling them to a local market. Uh, And part of this is uh, certainly the the religious texts that come out of the Great Awakening. Uh, this is this gets us up into the 1740s, but talk to me a little bit about Ben Franklin at this point and where, his relationship really with the Great Awakening. Well, his relationship with the Great Awakening is, is, is quite a controversial one. Um, there are different schools of thought about it. Now, my view is that by the time of the early 1740s, when the Great Awakening was really underway with the great evangelical tours by the English preacher George Whitefield, by that time, Franklin had ceased to be a church guy. I mean, he wasn't. He was nominally a Presbyterian, but he had ceased to be active in the church. He'd had various fallings out with, with members of the Presbyterian church. Uh, he was a Freemason, of course. Uh, he wasn't an atheist at this point. He had been an atheist earlier in his youth, but not at this point. Mm. Um, he didn't really have any great religious affinity with, with George Whitefield and the preachers of the Great Awakening. But there were two things, I think, that really appealed to him. First of all, there was a great commercial opportunity because the Great Awakening was indeed a quite extraordinary phenomenon. And there was a huge demand for reading matter, both for and against uh, the preachers of the Great Awakening, both for and against Whitefield, for example. But also, I think Franklin was fascinated by George Whitefield as a person. I mean, George Whitefield really was a quite extraordinary character, a complicated, charismatic figure, uh, again, there are differences of opinion about him. Some people thought he was a hero. Some people thought he was a charlatan. Some people thought he was a villain. But you couldn't ignore it. And Franklin, throughout his life, was fascinated by people who were different from the norm. I mean, Franklin liked eccentrics. He liked colourful people. He liked people whose ideas were not entirely orthodox. And that, I think, was one of the things that really appealed to him about George Whitefield. Now, eventually, I think, it took a little while, the two eventually did become quite good personal friends, actually. Never really on the same religious wavelength, as it were, but quite good personal friends. And I think Franklin was genuinely unhappy and really quite very sad when, when Whitefield passed away relatively early, actually, at a relatively young age in the early 1770s. 
one of the great things uh, about this book that is the depth and the, the number of characters that we haven't even uh, mentioned at all that were that were a part of Ben Franklin's life. Uh, but I, as we come to a close, I want to focus on actually uh, the the subtitle, "The Birth of Ingenuity." Uh, what is ingenuity uh, to you, to Franklin? Uh, how does the Ben Franklin story help us to understand? something ab- about the period in which he lived. Because he's so exceptional, it's almost hard to, to kind of take the exceptional and understand the era. And yet that's something that I think we can do through this book. Talk to us a little bit about the subtitle, The Birth of Ingenuity. Well, there's two words you need to really concentrate on. One is ingenuity and the other one is industry. Now, the reason why ingenuity appears in the subtitle is because it was one of Franklin's favorite words. If you look closely at the autobiography, his great autobiography, and read his letters, you'll find that the word ingenuity appears, the ingenuity or ingenious, many, many times. Uh, it's a word he always uses to describe people of whom he approves in some way or another. <laughs> For example, his father, you know, Josiah, who he says is very ingenious. Now, the point about the word ingenuity is this. Now, this was a word which had been around for a very long time uh, in the English language. Uh, it comes from the Latin, obviously. Um, but in the 1660s, 1670s, about that period, the period when Sir Isaac Newton was making his great discoveries, in that period, the word ingenuity really came into vogue in England. Uh, and it referred to a kind of combination of skills with the hand, with the brain. Uh, and of course, it was very heavily tinged with ideas about scientific progress. And it was also connected with another word, which is improvement, the idea of scientific improvement of, of, the, of the lot of humanity. Now, the reason it's so important for Franklin is because really Franklin, in many ways, was a kind of continuation of that scientific movement of the 17th century. Uh, Franklin had all kinds of connections with people who had been active in the 17th century. Huge admirer of Newton, for example, one of his great heroes. I mean, Franklin actually had had his portrait painted in front of a bust of Sir Isaac Newton. But the other thing is that this kind of cult of ingenuity in England in the 17th century, this cult of, of science and technology, became one of the building blocks, if you like, of the Industrial Revolution. And again, you know, one of the the simplest ways, and I think the most illuminating ways to look at Benjamin Franklin is to see Franklin as the man who, if you like, did more than anyone else to bring the Industrial Revolution to America. Wow. This has been a remarkable story. I want to ask you one last question. That's just uh, this. What are you working on now? (laughs) Well, I'm working on a number of different things. but uh, one possibility is I might write a sequel to, uh, to Young Benjamin Franklin, The Birth of Ingenuity, but that might be quite a long-term project because the thing about Franklin is uh, the, the older he got, the more material he produced. And mm. the archival and documentary material about Franklin kind of explodes after about 1750. So it becomes a much more difficult job to, uh, to get to grips with it. That's one possibility. There is another. I'm also working on various projects that might be more to do with 20th century American history. Well, I hope you write part two of Ben Franklin's life. But thank you so much for this time. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.